So, Bob, I have a bunch of emails here that I compiled that have to do with borderline personality disorder, and I thought we would read those emails and respond to them. What do you say? What's our goal today? How many we want to do? Okay. Um, I, well, I just want to get through the whole list of borderline emails, and it's probably 10-ish. Oh, okay. So we, let's see. We're going to get close, at least. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm hoping to actually even go a little bit beyond that if, if we might be able to. Right on. Uh, this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob? Uh, I'm Bob Gettle. I'm a therapist, practice here in Seattle, and we're old friends from school. We are. So, borderline emails. This first one is anonymous patron. They write, my favorite episodes are those with Bob. Hmm. I live in a small European country of Latvia. For a year and a half, I visited a psychotherapist every week. My therapist uses existential therapy, and he avoids labeling and diagnosis. I also find this approach compelling, but listening to your podcast, I have come to the conclusion that I could be on the borderline personality disorder spectrum. I have a great sense of emptiness. I have no understanding of who I am. My personality is borrowed from the behavior of other people around me. I find it difficult to define my feelings. All of my relationships fall apart because of my clinginess. I have a constant feeling that everyone will reject me. There are also constant suicidal thoughts and self-destructive behaviors. I told my therapist that I might be on the borderline personality disorder spectrum, to which he replied, not likely. Hmm. I talk a lot to the therapist about how I feel about our relationship, that I have a feeling he could reject me. He is very sensitive and responsive, and I really like him. Hmm. I think we have a special connection, but on the other hand, Nothing has improved in my life in a year and a half. Mm. Today, the therapist said that he did not understand how to help me and how to convince me that he cared about me. Is the problem with my therap is this a problem with my therapist or is it a problem with my personality? Should I try to change therapists? Uh, this is an instance where your dog is barking and not my dog. It is. Usually it's my dog that's barking. Right. And I wonder if the listeners could tell that that wasn't my dog, because my dog has a very distinctive, all dogs have distinctive barks. And I'm wondering if the listeners hearing that dog barking are like, "That is, does Kirk have a new dog? Because that doesn't sound like the normal dog barking. Mm-hmm. But that's your dog. That's does ours. your dog bark at delivery people or people walking down the street? Or what's what's the deal? Delivery people, yeah. Um, street, no. But right now we have our neighbor's dogs over. And that's usually, um, if Colleen's paying attention to one of the other dogs, Rosie will bark. Oh. <laughs> Jealous barking. <laughs> wow. Um, all right. Well, let's get to the first question first, which is yeah. that she's saying, my therapist doesn't use labels, and mm-hmm. I think I might be on the borderline spectrum. What do you think about that? I don't know if it matters, to be honest. Um, you like your therapist you have a sense of connection with one another. I mean, what you call it doesn't matter. The work that it sounds to me like the work that you're doing together is in service of your well-being and welfare. And I don't know if it would change at all if you guys settled on that particular label. Right. Yeah, there are some purists who don't use DSM labels. Uh, existential people, for example, but right. there, there are plenty of people who are existential, call themselves existential, and absolutely do use labels. But if you're a purist, 
uh, humanistic therapist, then you're at the very least not going to be prone to using those kinds of labels. Systems therapists, solution-focused therapists, narrative therapists, brief therapists, all are not super interested or completely hostile to using DSM labels based mm-hmm. on based on their uh, their theory of change. Uh, but then to have your therapist say not likely, that sounds like they are using labels. You know, it'd be one thing mm. for you to tell your therapist, mm. um, you know, I might be on the borderline spectrum. And they're like, you know what? I don't use labels. Uh, I, I don't even really study them very much. Here's how I see you. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not what your therapist said. Your therapist said not likely. So that means your therapist is at least in that second thinking in label terms. And, you know, it's interesting. Now, you know, of course, we're not there. We don't know you Mm -hmm. like your therapist does. But anyway, then you ask, you know, I haven't changed at Mm -hmm. all over the number of time that I've spent with my therapist. And is this a problem? And should I change? Bob, what do you think? Uh, what I hear in that, I believe, is fear. Uh-oh, maybe I'm not going to change. Maybe I'm not getting better. Um, and it is scary, isn't it? I I get it. It's scary. And um, at the risk of sounding invalidating, it's only been a year and a half. Therapy takes, I'm quoting Dr. Honda here, therapy takes a long time. And it does. You're talking about probably trying to change very deep old parts of self you've got reason to have that that you called it a clinging thing you've got reason to have that that's based in insecurity and that takes a while to change i guess it, the short answer is don't worry about it it's okay it's probably okay yeah it's hard to say mm-hmm. and of course as Bob would say, talk to your therapist about it. Absolutely. It, th- it sounds like things are going well. It sounds yeah. like a secure attachment, and yeah, it takes time. And uh, it would be, it wouldn't be uncommon for someone suffering from a personality disorder to say that they feel like things aren't changing, at the very least, not fast enough, because mm-hmm. there's a tremendous amount of suffering mm-hmm. that come from ongoing relational traumas as a child. And as Bob has talked about with his own therapy, he's been in therapy, you know, in earnest for 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And if the first couple of years you asked him, have all your problems gone away, Bob would have said no. And it's tempting to say, oh, therapy isn't worth it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, of course, you wouldn't say that, Bob. So mm-hmm. it, it takes a long time. And, mm-hmm. you know, you just you just muddle your way through it. It's mm-hmm. it's. And the the sort of false notion is that we have two types of people. You have the relationally traumatized and then the healthy people. Mm-hmm. And there aren't there isn't such a thing. Everyone you 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 talk to anyone who even has a shred of self awareness and they will say, I've been struggling with X, Y, and Z my entire life and I've been mm-hmm. to a lot of therapy and I've I've helped myself kind of with it, but I, it still crops up literally on a daily basis. Right. So the fact that you're experiencing that perhaps in a more acute or in a more uh, distressing, ongoing distressing, interfering with your life sort of way, as with you know severe relational trauma and reactivity to it, 
uh, is you know particular, and 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 I don't want to downplay it, but the the action of moving towards health and the action of change is something that I guess if we live to be a thousand years old, maybe we would succeed, but we I don't think we live long enough to succeed. Is my point. So um, so there's that. However, you know, if it doesn't seem like therapy is, isn't, you know, if it seems like therapy isn't going well or you don't feel like you're getting the right kind of treatment that you need, then, you know, you can see a second opinion. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. If, if a client of mine was like, you know what, I just don't know if your approach is really best for me. I was thinking about getting a second opinion. I would be all over that. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I guess in the beginning of my career, I'd be a little insulted, but but I would know very uh, well to say to that's not their problem. That's my problem. Um, mm-hmm. Anonymous patron says, "Oh, did we do it all? I think so. Why? No, because there was the the question. My therapist said the thing about um, maybe it's not helping. Maybe it's not helping. Oh, let me read that again. Uh, I talked to my therapist about how I feel about our relationship." that I have a feeling he could reject me. He is very sensitive and responsive, and I really like him. Mm-hmm. I think we have a special connection. But on the other hand, nothing has improved in my life in a year mm-hmm. and a half. Oh, today the therapist said that he did not understand how to help me and how to convince me. And he, that, and Oh, the therapist said he did not understand how to help me and how to convince me that he cared about me. Mm. Uh, what do you think about that, Bob? Oh, I just feel sad. Um, look... I'm going to say something here that's speculation. And that is, it might be that the therapist was just having a hard time. And um, as my old supervisor said to me, um, falling into the pool of despair that perhaps you find yourself in, um, patron who's writing in. Um, And that happens. And um, it doesn't mean that um, it's not helping, but um, it may be par for the course that one, the other, or both of you from time to time have, um, you know, worry about that, worry about it not helping. I actually don't think it's the therapist's job to try to persuade you. I think I think my job is to keep showing up, keep showing up, keep showing up, keep showing up, and um, doing what I've learned to do. And I think that in the long run, that's going to have an impact. But I doubt that you could be persuaded and if it were me, I might be thinking about um, how hard it is, like, to not be persuaded. Like, that that must be very hard for you to have doubt. But you don't choose to have that. It just sort of happens, and that's okay. We can roll with that, too. Right. Yeah. I don't think I have anything to add to that. Um, right. An honest patron says... How would love, oh, hello, would love to get some advice on how to help my stepkids, age eight and nine, manage living with their borderline personality mother. They describe a mother who is quick to anger and difficult to predict what actions will set her off. The punishment is, so just just to be clear here, that this anonymous patron, she is... Uh, she married a fella who had two kids from a previous relationship and this 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 the 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 biological mother of the <laughs> you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. uh she says that the children describe the mother who was quickly 
Quick to anger and difficult to predict what actions will set her off, the punishment is often extreme. Once she loses her temper, she becomes extremely verbally abusive to the kids. She also heavily favors one child over the other. Bob, what do you think? Oh, that sounds awful. I'm sure that's very hard to be on the sidelines for and to watch unfold. Um, I'm curious what you got to say about that, Kirk. The first thing that comes to my mind, though, is... Um, 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 well, crap, it just flew out of my head. I don't remember what I was going to say. Can you believe it? I just, that's been happening to me a lot the last month. I was like on the edge of my seat. You're like, well, you know, the first thing that, that I had to say, and I'm, cause I'm, I can see you over Zoom and, yeah. and I, and I see you're like, um, and I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, what is going to come? And then another, um, and I'm like, oh my God, it's, what is going to happen? Um, yeah. what's going to, what is he going to say? <laughs> Wait, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> I hope it comes back. <laughs> okay, maybe if I yammer, it'll come back to you. Um, right. Well, first off, it's hard to know if she has borderline. Uh, maybe yeah. you have an evaluation. Somehow I, I doubt that. Uh, so... Uh, but it's possible uh, mm-hmm. it's, to, to talk a little bit about borderline and how that could result in verbal abuse to children is you, as, an, uh, as a child, you go through severe relational traumas, perhaps abuse, often abuse, mm-hmm. and you are very sensitive naturally in the same way that a veteran is very sensitive to loud noises and blood or a person who... Uh, repeatedly falls down a cliff, for example, would be very sensitive to looking at a mountain. Someone who uh, was relationally traumatized by people close to them would be very triggered by hurt and abandonment from people that are close to them. And it is a physiological reaction. It's not a choice that people with borderline have. It is a physiological trigger in the same way that if... I don't know, you cut off someone's arm and you said, okay, you know, don't cry (laughs) or don't freak out or don't have your heart race or something. Uh, Mm. It's like not possible. We all understand that some, well, somehow we think that people should be able to control their physiology and it's just not, you just, it's, it's literally impossible. And so when you have those relational traumas and you're being hurt by other people or abandoned or rejected, then you get triggered. And children routinely reject and hurt their parents. Mm. It happens all the time. And if you're differentiated and at least mostly secure as a parent, you uh, will, you know, it'll hurt and you'll get upset, but then you go to your adults and you talk about it in therapy or you talk about it with your spouse or you talk about it with your friends or you journal about it and you cope with it so that you don't slap back at the kids. But if you are times a hundred hurt and times a hundred upset, then sometimes the hurt and anger and harsh discipline is going to uh, sneak out of, of that person. So it's possible that the person does have borderline, but again, uh, based on your description, it's hard to know, of course, you know, that plenty of people are abusive to their kids or overly harsh to their kids. And we actually wouldn't uh, label them with anything. It's just bad parenting or 
bad modeling or overly stressed person or, you know, there's just a variety of reasons. But anyway, um, so you're asking, what do I do? I have these stepkids and I care about them. And there's this other parent who is doing these bad things. It's tough to control what another parent does. And as a family therapist, I've been in these shoes often. So the what I always say is one therapy, obviously, family therapy. You get all three parents into the room. You know, the kids are not there. And you talk about it. And you spend five years. You know, you, you your kids are eight and nine. You got a lot of parenting, particularly as they enter teenage years. You got a lot of parenting ahead of you. And the three of you should be in therapy, you know, at least once a month-ish to talk about how the three of you work together as parents. And it, it just seems so obvious to me as a, as a therapist who has helped people do this exact thing. And I see families struggling and hating each other and going in different directions and misunderstanding each other. I'm just like, people like stop it. <laughs> you know, it's like all these people walking around with broken arms and you're just like, go to the doctor, uh, you know, <laughs> like, uh, or people are walking around without shoes and their feet hurt. It's just like, there's a thing called shoes, people. Okay. There's a thing called family therapy and it just drives me nuts. Now I'm guessing the anonymous patron would be up for it, but maybe the ex-wife would not be. So I don't know who I'm yelling at, but I'm yelling at people. The, the other thing is, as I always say, developing a working relationship it is so, so common, and you know, I've been on this soapbox many times, where you run into the situation where you are now co-parenting with people that you are not involved with romantically or whatever, and there's conflict. There's conflict even with parents living in a wonderful marriage, okay? And if you hate each other, then guess what? <laughs> there's going to be problems parenting, even on a good day. And so... What I tell people is, okay, you're in a situation now where think bad things are happening. Well, it started from the beginning. This is, you know, it starts from the beginning. So as a couple, so anonymous patron, I think you're married to a man who was, who used to be married to that woman. And so the, th- and this is obviously not your uh, jurisdiction, but for him, for your husband, he should have prior to the divorce or during the divorce work go to therapy and work on developing a working relationship between him and his soon to be ex-wife such that they can coordinate parenting such that there is a open line of communication such that there is uh, influence going from in both directions but so many times people just go through a divorce because, and they just want to wash their hands of this person without realizing that, you know, in two years, you know, plus literally for the rest of their life, they have to be involved with this person intimately as co-parents. And unless you have that working relationship, there's nothing you can do. All you can do is just lament the fact that you are parenting differently than your ex is. Uh, that's all, and complain, and then triangulate the kids into that problem. You know, the kids, part of their problem is related to the fact that the parents are not working together 
any kid who has been through a divorced family knows how this feels of noticing, wow, my parents are really not on the same page. Wow, my parents clearly hate each other. This is destructive to kids. And divorce, fine. Uh, you know, there are a lot of research looking at divorce. If you want to mitigate the problems with kids, you have to work together, even if they have borderline. <laughs> and so it's uh, so anonymous patron, you're like, what do I do? Well, you rewind the clock, you get in a time machine, and you start right by w- developing a working relationship. Or you start now, and you spend the next five years of your life trying to get this woman to like you first, you know, where you're social together and you respect each other and you have a a foundation upon which you can say, you know what I heard the kids say? I don't want to step on any toes, but, you know, what's going on here? Are the kids exaggerating? Is there anything I can do? I don't want to insult you. That's what you do. Because what a lot of people do in this situation, they're just like, well, you know, now, of course, you can call CPS, which is another thing. You know, emotional abuse is CPS reportable, Child Protective Service reportable in my state anyway. Uh, and, you know, God knows what that would do, but that is an option uh, available to you. A long-term solution, it is not probably. But sometimes CPS can actually force family therapy. Uh, that's usually one of the first things they do, by the way, especially in a situation like this. And so... um so anyway, uh, that's what I'll say about that. Did you remember what you were going to say, Bob? I didn't. <laughs> yeah, but I don't have anything to add to what you're saying. <laughs> Except my response isn't based in training and family therapy. So I really am glad I didn't say anything because I think your response is um, more useful than anything I would have said. It's really weird that as a family therapist, mm-hmm. and I look back on the first 15 years of my career and how a third to a half of my week work was spent talking with parents about how to parent better (laughs) and just how complicated it is and how many angles there are to it and how our simplistic, often simplistic societal understanding of parenting is counterproductive. Um, Because, you know, it's really common for – so if if you brought this anonymous patron, this question, to a crowd of people, they'd be – they'd either be like, call CPS, or they'd say like, well, you got to blast that woman and tell her to knock it off. And it's like, uh, yeah, okay. So uh, patron Shago has a a question here that I I don't know if – you have a response to, but I'm curious. Hmm. <laughs> it's it's a borderline uh, email. Um, I have borderline personality disorder and am part of a Facebook group for people with borderline personality disorder. Actually, let me just pause there, Bob. In your work with people with borderline, uh, have you ever known them to be a part of an online group? Where they, Occasionally. And, and what's what have you heard? Have you heard anything? Bad, usually. Um, I, I think that, look, I'm going to generalize here. The, the what I've noticed about these groups is that they can be echo chambers for dysfunction, um, wherein people can lead each other into destructive behavior, self-destructive behavior, um, or despair. Um, so I'm really mindful of peer-led support, especially online peer-led support, because... Um, um, 
because you get a wide variety of folks that are um, participating and are in pain. And so um, maybe um, offering advice that isn't something I would offer um, that might actually be harmful. So um, I I don't want to say that that's exclusively true. And I'm really conscious of saying this because I can imagine peer-led support could be, it feels like people really get me and they really understand me. But I worry about the, say, one or two or three percent of folks who are in pain who um, um, are acting that out in the group and the impact of that on the rest of the group. Is there something about borderline that makes it particularly hard? Because, you know, if if people have, like, social phobia, I could imagine an online forum being helpful. People saying, oh, you know, I get shy in this situation or I have shame in this situation. Uh, Is there something particular about borderline that would make it more susceptible to becoming a problem? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think it's the uh, um, that one of the one of the problems with BPD is folks have these suicidal and self harm impulses, and so look when I run a DBT skills class, one of the rules that we have is that you cannot talk about what they would call target behavior. Target behavior is any behavior that I'm targeting in therapy to eliminate, including um, non lethal self injury and um, suicide attempt. Um, So you can't talk about that in the group. And the reason for that is because we can potentially lead one another into temptation. And there is research on not monitoring that or not limiting that in a group. And what happens, what you'll notice is that people will mimic other people's behavior. And when I was young and foolish and just learning about how to do DBT and running a DBT skills class, I didn't understand that as thoroughly as I could. And one of the person talked about a non-lethal self-harm behavior that they did that week, and one of the other members mimicked it over the course of the week. In other words, did the exact same thing. I think they were greenlit by two things. One, by the modeling of that, by the talking about that, the war story of that. And the other is they didn't have somebody like me who's supposed to say, hey, we're not going to talk about that here. Remember, we're not going to lead one another into temptation. We're trying to go up the mountain, not down the mountain. These days, what I say is, oh, you mean you did target behavior? Is that what you're saying? And they say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Sorry. Yes, I did a target behavior. And then we just leave it there. So um, I'm concerned that a peer-led support group might not have that kind of rule. It may. I don't know. It's not like I have much experience with them. Um, But if it didn't, and people do, they have the potential to lead one another to temptation that you know, wouldn't happen with something like social phobia. Yeah. Yeah. I also think, and it, this uh, patron gets into it, the, uh, that the issue with p- personality disorders is a matter of perception. When you have social anxiety, usually people know that they have social anxiety and they know that it's excessive. Personality disorders are defined as it's pervasive through the personality, meaning that there isn't a part of the personality that reflects on the perception and says, uh, that might be excessive. You know, pre-treatment, particularly for people with any personality disorder, they feel like their perception is a billion percent correct. And that when that when my therapist said that one thing like, oh, I'm sorry, we're at the end of our session right now and we have to adjourn, and the person with borderline, given their sensitivity to abandonment, is convinced that the therapist hates them. And make no joke about it, if, you know, this is a at least common enough, it's not universal, of course, but 
that a lot of people with borderline will at least have this notion. And uh, for them to say, my therapist treated me like crap today because he ended the session on time in a way that was very harsh to me, in a way that was very clearly meant to tell me that he didn't like me, even though the therapist literally had no thought of wanting to reject the client and was merely ending the session on time. This is very common. And therapists understand that, and people that understand borderline are sensitive to that and are fine with it. It's normal. It's part of the transference process. But you get a bunch of people who have these perceptions together, again, pre-treatment, and this and many other perceptual problems get echo chambered around, then you could put, and without anyone around to go like, well, is it possible that your perception is a little questionable here? Uh, then you're going to potentially have a problematic echo chamber. Now, I'm sure there are some online groups for people with borderline that are great, uh, but uh, and I don't have any experience with it, but um, I, you know, I trust Bob's opinion because he has more contact with that. Uh, but Patron Shago actually uh, says here, you know, I, I have borderline and I'm a part of a Facebook group for people with borderline. We post on our issues and advise each other on how to deal. Every time someone comments about their significant other, the entire comment section is filled with, a, with the word gaslighting. Oh, God. <laughs> you, uh, usually I wouldn't care. But since I listen to your content, I know that gaslighting is, a really, is not really a thing except in extreme events. I feel like the Facebook group is using gaslighting as a crutch and not really working on finding help for their issues. Please help me educate these fools. I'm joking. They are not fools. But this crutch exasperates me. Uh, Bob, what do you think of this? I don't have anything to add to what the person is saying. <laughs> uh, agreed. Yeah, right. So let's define gaslighting. But first, let's take a break. What do you say? Sure. Hey, Deserving Listeners, as you know, I'm constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. One of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp.com. So if you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to BetterHelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the slash Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it helps us out. I get a lot of emails from you saying that you're looking for a therapist. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist, but I know it can be really hard to find a good one to work with. Like I said, one of the options available to try is betterhelp.com slash Kirk. And you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide, which is amazing. I've been told that you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message with your counselor anytime. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. And I've been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy. So go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk to get 10% off your first month of therapy today. All right, we're back from the break. So to define gaslighting, it is purposely scheming, purposely scheming, and not just purposely, but also scheming, meaning, you know, uh, premeditated plans to get someone to question their thoughts and memories, uh, knowingly manipulating someone to adopt a, a lie, essentially. Mm-hmm. So this is purposefully, knowingly, and scheming. 
and you're going on a campaign. It could be a five-minute campaign, could be a five-year campaign, but you're sitting down and you're saying, I am going to purposely mess with this person's mind by getting that person to question their thoughts and memories, by making them feel crazy, and I'm doing it completely on purpose without any emotion about it. Okay, so there are two situations possible when anyone says, I'm being gaslit. One is that someone is legitimately gaslighting you. Some other person, some victimizer has decided long in advance that they are going to get you to question your your sanity. For sure, this happens. And I've seen this clinically. No, no, sorry. I've never seen this clinically. I've only seen it in my personal life. I've never experienced gaslighting in my in my practice, uh, whether it, it's a client doing it or a someone in the client's life, I've never in my mind thought, oh, that person is knowingly and purposely scheming against my client to screw with their head. I've never seen that. I've only seen it in my personal life. And Bob, you were around back then, but mm-hmm. I don't think you would have remembered him. This, You remember my friends, you know, my I won't name their names, but I, you remember my friends from back in the day when I lived in that apartment on Meridian. And... And, uh, uh, I mean, I'm still friends with them, but Mm -hmm. there was this, uh, other guy that became really good friends with one of my friends and he was a con artist and psychopath. Do you remember this guy? No. Oh, so he was, uh, he, he was really nice and he weaseled his way into a couple of my friends' lives very, very quickly. Wow. He became like a overnight best friend with those two guys and by extension me. And when the, you know, some weird stuff happened and when the dust settled, we looked back and we realized the whole time he was conning all of us by trying to get us to give him money. He faked that he had cancer. And I remember he said that he was going through cancer uh, treatment and, and he shaved his head. And I remember seeing the follicles on his head and saying, and, you know, this is before the Internet. So I remember thinking, so uh, when you have cancer you shave your head? I thought you lost your hair. You know what I mean? Now, some people will shave their head pre, yeah, you know, just right. preemptively. But anyway, the point is, is that he was, a, he didn't have cancer and they found out, they found actually all these letters that had been written to him of all these other people that he had conned. But he was a, he was a complete failure as a con artist. <laughs> Long story short, he left a bunch of uh, so, you know, it comes to light. He's been conning and he skips town. And my two friends are like, oh, my God, we've been scammed out of all this money. Oh, wow. But then they go to, uh, you know, figure out what's been going on. And the the con artist had left a bunch of his possessions at my friend's house, including his car. Huh? Uh, and so... Uh, they had all this evidence that he was a con artist from all these letters, and they could they now had his car as like collateral, essentially like give me my crap back and I'll give you the car back, and all these other things. And and the point was it was just and whenever anyone says like psychopaths are these you know masterminds, is like no, <laughs> the typical psychopath antisocial person is a complete failure when it comes to trying to win at life. Psychopaths are train wrecks. They are not geniuses. They're dis- they have a disorder is the thing. It mm-hmm. gets in the way. It is not 
typically used to good effect for them in their lives. Psychopaths are usually quite miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anyway, that he, he gaslit all my friends. You know, he yeah. went on a campaign to make them convince them of something and also to kind of try to mess with their, their heads in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And it was very, very uh, upsetting and, and mm-hmm. was um, really just nuts. So just, mm-hmm. whoa. So I've got to rewrite that entire history. And that guy, for sure, before he even met my friends, was on a campaign to mess with their heads. Okay, so that that's pretty rare, though, right? Mm-hmm. All right, so that's one situation is that, yeah, you know, you have a psychopath in your life that is actively trying to hurt you with their minds. The other situation, which is much more likely if, if someone's using the word gaslighting, is that it feels like gaslighting. Mm. There are many situations where it feels like someone is on a campaign to screw with your head, mm. where it feels like someone doesn't care about you, where it feels like someone is narcissistic and only self-centered and doesn't care about other human beings. It feels like that person lacks emotion and empathy. It feels that way. Absolutely. It hundred, I've been there. Boz, all of us have been there where we're, we're looking at a, at a person close to us and thinking, is that person a complete psychopath? Do they have no empathy? Why are they screwing with my mind? It feels that way. But when you get into the other person's mind, they also are struggling mm-hmm. and hurting and angry, and they are not on a campaign against you, but it feels that way. So let me give an example. Mm-hmm. You're in a fight with your partner. You talk about how your partner called called you a bad name. You're like, you know, last night you called me an a-hole, and that was completely unfair. And your partner's like, I did not call you an a-hole. That never happened. I don't know what you're talking about. You called me an a-hole. I did not call you an a-hole. You're crazy. Okay. In that moment, you're like, I'm being gaslit. Or the person doesn't remember. Or you don't remember. (laughs) Or they called you an a-hole, but they're terribly ashamed of calling you an a-hole, and they Mm. don't want to talk about it. They know that they called you an a-hole, and they don't want to admit it. That's not gaslighting. That's normal life where people are in denial or forgetful or emotionally remembering or motivated remembering. And this happens all the time. If we use this situation for gaslighting, then literally 100% of humans are gaslighting people frequently. Mm -hmm. So yes, uh, uh, patron Shago, when people with borderline or with any relational traumas, are experiencing one deep, deep, deep hurt, and they're looking for an explanation. Gaslighting is a convenient and catchy, you know, sort of trendy explanation these days. And it feels that way. And that's okay. You know, it, it feels like the other person doesn't care. It feels like the other person is on a campaign to screw with your head. The other thing is, is that when you suffer from relational traumas, you are at risk of inventing things that have happened that did not actually happen. Let me give an example, and I've talked about this before. I had a client years and years ago in couple therapy, and 
I didn't know if the wife had borderline, but I, I just I was wondering if there was something going on there, some kind of relational trauma, some kind of perceptual problem. And uh, I don't know. Toward the end of the session, I, I'm really trying hard to. Uh, work with the couple and something it gets a little tense between me and the couple I can't remember exactly what happened but the the wife gets real upset at me real kind of short with me and they're like okay well we're going to leave now and so they leave and I and after the session I'm like man things really did not go well and it was one of those massive relationship ruptures and I reached out to her later and I said um, you know I noticed you didn't make an appointment I don't know if you wanted to but I, I want to maybe schedule another appointment with the two of you at the very least to kind of uh, talk about what happened last time. Cause I, I feel like I might've failed you a little bit as a, as a therapist. And the wife was like, Oh, thanks for reaching out. I actually wasn't going to make an appointment with you because of what happened last session. So they come in and we're, we're talking about the last session. And she says, um, she says, well, okay, that's all fine and good. But, what you said was terrible. And I was like, well, what did I say? She's like, well, you said, I can't remember exactly what she said, but it was something absurd. And I've talked about this before on the podcast before. And this has happened many times. This is not the only time this has ever happened, but I just always think of this as an example. And she says, you said to me that I was a, you know, a piece of crap or so- something just absurd. And I said, I did not say that. <laughs> I can't, you must have, misheard me you know and in my head I'm like oh I think I'm dealing with a perceptual problem here and I said not only have I never said that to a client including you two I've never thought that about a client Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know so now it's possible that I said something very close to that and it was you know you misheard it but I guarantee you and it's critical that you understand me and believe me and trust me that I would never say that and I would never think that. I don't think that about you. I That's just not a thing I think. And she was 100% convinced that I did. The husband said he never, Kirk never said that. <laughs> Kirk mm. never, ever, ever said that. He would never say that. Uh, he didn't even say anything close to that. So wife of mine, you're, you know, you must have misheard him, you know, believe him when he says and there was a little, you know, there's many, many sessions of, of future reparative work. And I think mm. I can manage to convince her to get about to a 50% mark mm-hmm. of believing that I hadn't said that. Okay. So in that situation, in, in her darker moments, I'm sure she thought I was gaslighting her and her husband. Mm-hmm. Because in her heart, she knows that mm-hmm. I said she was a piece of crap. Mm-hmm. Because that's the constant message she was getting from her parents when she was young Mm. and the assumption of that statement is usually right and it that's why they call it borderline is because in the beginning when they observed people uh, of a particular personality they would have thoughts that borderlined on delusion believing something that was clearly not true and that's why they called it borderline because it, the the clinicians, the early psychoanalysts in the 40s were like, I know I did not say that to mm-hmm. that client last week, but that client is convinced of this whole other reality that I don't like them, that I'm a terrible person, that I said this and that, that and, and they're so angry at me. I 
it it sounds like schizophrenia, but it also isn't because it's not delusional. That's why they called it borderline because it is a perceptual problem, and all personality disorders have this massive perceptual problem. The avoidant personality person is 100% sure that everyone is watching them and making fun of them in their minds. That, you know, everyone notices just how ridiculous they are. To the you know, histrionic personality person, they are 100% convinced that they n- need attention. Well, I won't go down that road. But the point is, is that it, it, you know, a part of the disorder of borderline left untreated and without much insight yeah, it makes total sense that that one would feel like they were being gaslit because they're like, no, I remember this, but everyone or that person is saying that never happened, and I'm completely convinced. And then you get a bunch of them in the same Facebook group, and yeah, you know, I, I don't know if it's helping or not helping, but for Patron Shago, they're like, this is driving me nuts. <laughs> we can. I have something to add to that. Yeah. You know, like I do a thing called DBT. DBT is dialectical behavior therapy. A dialectic is there's one point of view and there's another point of view, and they look like they're in opposition. So everybody goes through this in inside themselves. It's like, on the one hand, I think this, or I believe this. And on the other hand, I've got this other feeling here. Like, I feel like this is what's happening. You know, this perceptual thing that you're describing, right? But that's true of everybody. We have... Um, you know what I what I think I should do and what I feel like I want to do, and they're in they look like they're in opposition or in conflict, and that also happens between people. Sort of like there's my point of view and there's your point of view, and there's a reason I have my point of view, and there's validity in your point of view too. Your point of view just happens to be different. So if I get out of my shoes and they come around to your side and I kind of see the world, getting your shoes and see the world from your point of view, I can see how what you do, how you feel, how you see things, how you think makes sense. Not that it's right, just that it makes sense given your point of view. And one of the things that's lacking in the Facebook group is an, an, an acknowledgement of the other person's point of view. And so it's easy to sort of vilify and say, well, blah, 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 gaslighting. In DBT, there is an assumption that each person is doing the very best they can. Each person is doing the very best they can, even when they're falling short. So um, um, that's what's missing. I think what might be missing from the Facebook group or the, the online group is that kind of acknowledgement that there is another side to the story that we are not privy to because that other person isn't here representing themselves or saying, well, here's how I see it or whatever. And so um, they're missing Yeah, a bit. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe you mentioned this, mm-hmm. that there's a dialectic between how I feel like things are mm-hmm. going and maybe how my, uh, I don't know, the DBT language, but mm-hmm. the watchful eye sees things or the, mm-hmm. the mindful Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. sees things. Yeah. There's dialectic between my knee-jerk reaction and right. my ability to reflect on that. They're, and both are okay, and both right. are there. And that we have a dialectic there. We we don't just go with one side of the dialectic. Yeah, that's the point is to hold both. So if I a person who uses um, non-lethal, say, self-harm to cope, on the one hand, it makes sense that I do that. And on the other hand, that's a really bad thing to do. They're both true at the same time. 
All right. So actually, um, we actually stopped recording for a bit of time because uh, I was futzing with my mic and I I cut off Bob. And so um, we're uh, whatever Bob was saying earlier, uh, if it just suddenly ended, it's because of that technical problem. But let's move on to another email. Anonymous patron says, I've been in therapy for five years for disorganized mm-hmm. attachment and borderline personality disorder. And I no longer meet the criteria because of the therapy. Is it always unhealthy to pursue attachments I have to dismissive avoidant partners? I understand that this attraction reflects my early relationship with my dad. He was inconsistent, sometimes affectionate, sometimes neglectful or emotionally or physically intrusive. He was disallowing of boundaries. My dad has now passed away, and I am deeply attracted to avoidance because I understand their pain and withdrawal is from a place of hurt. I have spent years in a relationship with a secure person, and I just didn't fall in love. Hmm. Is the anxious uh, avoidant trap, you know, preoccupied people being with avoidant people, is that trap always toxic, even with insight? What do you think, Bob? No. No, I don't think it's toxic. I I mean, I I get that there's problems, or there can be problems, but more than who you're, you know, like it's... I guess I think it's more than who you're attracted to. It's what you do in your relationship. So let's say you are. Let's say you find yourself drawn to people who have an avoidant style. Okay. Are you with somebody that you love, that you enjoy having sex with, that whose company you enjoy, you have a good time together, you really appreciate and care about one another? Then that's that's a great basis for a relationship. And if in that relationship you each have insecure moments or insecure um, you know, tendencies, how you deal with that is more important than whether or not it actually exists. So my hope is that if you find yourself falling into the same kinds of insecure patterns, you know, with someone who happens to have a more avoidant style, that you learn how to get the spotlight back on you, right? So if they're doing their avoidant thing and you notice that it's triggering something in you, how about the relationship be a source of comfort and soothing for you when you need it as opposed to, oh, oh, what do I do because they're pulling back? It's sort of like, oh, wait a minute. This is the sign that I'm feeling off balance. I'm feeling, you know, and so what, what, what's happening in me? How am I feeling? What do I need? Can I attend to that as opposed to attend to the other? Yeah, that's great. Thanks. Um, the only thing I'll add is, you know, this question, is it always toxic? Uh, it's hard to generalize and... When we talk about preoccupied people and avoidant people, we're literally talking about perhaps half, if not 75% of the planet. And so this notion that you know all of those people are incompatible with each other, we mm-hmm. would all understand that's silly. There's a wide variety of personalities. It depends on the degree of the insecure attachment. It depends on the level of insight. It depends on the, the amount of therapy in the person's past. It depends on the amount of relational or emotional stress the person is going through. depends on compatibility. Uh, you know, the pl- there are plenty of uh, secure in people who don't get along with each other because they're just not compatible. Uh, and on effort, how much effort do you put into the relationship? Uh, Bob and Colleen, for example, put a lot of effort into their relationship and and things are, you know, going strong and going well. So uh, it, it's hard to generalize about that. But I will say that the preoccupied avoidant pattern has a lot of pitfalls. And the pursuer-distancer dynamic has a lot of pitfalls and can 
by its nature, the two will trigger each other. The avoidant person, when they're hurt, pulls away, which is uh, rejecting and seemingly inconsistent to the preoccupied person. And when they're hurt, then the the preoccupied person is going to lean in either in functional ways or dysfunctional ways, and the avoidant person is going to further avoid, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And so there is a, there's an inherent uh, risk when you have a preoccupied and avoidant person together. A lot of preoccupieds and avoidants match up sort of well. There's a lot of research on this, and I'll tell you the gestalt is that we can't generalize. Uh, the, it, the only thing we can really say is the more attachment secure you are and the less attachment insecure you are, regardless of the style of insecurity, the more likely the relationship will be satisfactory and the more likely the relationship will last. So, uh, and, and if you have at least one person that is more secure then again, that usually has better outcomes, but you know, we're talking about trends and correlations. We're not talking about everyone. So, uh, for sure, uh, it you know it can work, and and it and it often does. And th- there's some pros to the anxious avoidant dynamic, which is that the preoccupied person will bridge the gap that the avoidant person needs to happen. Mm. The avoidant person tends to be fairly even keeled, depending, and that can be very security inducing for the preoccupied person. Um, also underneath every avoidant person is a preoccupied person. And so sometimes those two preoccupied voices can really bond. Mm. Uh, when a preoccupied person manages to get through the avoidance in the avoidant person, it sometimes allows the preoccupied uh, core of the avoidant person to emerge. And there can be a, a great deal of emotional healing from mm. those two preoccupied people uh, taking care of each other. Um, but having said all that, the more therapy and the more healing you go through, and you know, you, you said you've been in therapy for five years for disorganized attachment and borderline. I don't know, you know, anonymous patron, your situation, obviously, but I would say on average for truly disorganized attachment and true borderline personality disorder, it, the therapy uh, course is way beyond five years in terms of what it can be utilized as helpful. And, it's possible that you effectively no longer meet criteria, which is great, and you've recovered a great deal and you've done a lot of hard work, but you still have a fair amount of healing before you. And with that healing, then maybe you will not be so locked in with avoidant people, uh, grieving your father, this sort of thing, and will be more open to falling in love with other sorts of attachment-oriented individuals. You said that you were in a relationship with a secure person and you just didn't fall in love. Could be the you know the secure person just wasn't your thing, not because of their security, but just because of who they are. Uh, but it's also possible that because of your need for projective identification and repetition compulsion that uh, the secure person just didn't provide the opportunity for that, which lends itself to more healing. Um, but, you know, if you're in a good relationship and and... If you, 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 you muddle through it the, the way we all do, then, you know, that's certainly a, a worthy life worth living. Uh, anonymous upper tier patron says, I have a question for Bob hmm. and, and you. 
Kirk. Mm-hmm. Oh. I have I have recently been learning about attachment styles because I wonder if I may have a disorganized attachment style due to several past traumas. While exploring the topic, I sometimes get triggered. If Bob feels safe to do so, would he please talk about how he notices if he is being triggered and what he does to take care of himself when it happens? By the way, I have my own therapist, and I've reached out to for the, to them for help when I was struggling. So, Bob, if you feel comfortable, sure. Uh, anonymous up to your patron wants to know when you're triggered. What do you do to take care of yourself when it happens? I don't like what I'm about to say to you, but I'm going to say uh, anyways. I don't think I'm particularly good at that. I'd like to be better at that. I think when I get triggered, I often blame. I fall into blame and um, don't as easily, uh, don't don't slow down enough and pay attention to the fact that I'm in pain, that I'm hurting, and that I require um, comfort and soothing. Um, and, you know, that's not always available. Like, that's not always available for anybody. And so it's not always available for me. And I can get pretty ornery when I think that um, Colleen is putting up a wall. But I think Colleen puts up a wall because she protects herself from um, my thorniness, if that's a way to put it. Um, so, so I would like to be better at soothing myself and about putting a little space between me and the moment. So like, I'm not reacting immediately right away. I think I could get better at that, um, which might mean leaving my house and taking a walk and trying to help my body calm down. Uh, it might mean going into my freezer and getting a bag of frozen corn and sticking it on my face. And there's um, reason to do that. It actually helps calm the nervous system. When you put wet and cold on over your eyelids and you hold your breath for 30 seconds, it can actually help your body calm down. I wish I were faster at that. Sometimes when I'm in that, I'm like, fuck that. I don't want to do that. Excuse me for swearing. I don't want to do that. I don't. I just want Colleen to do it, take care of me. And, you know, um, um, I um, can be demanding in a way that um, doesn't work in my marriage. I don't love that answer. I want to give you something that's um, more hopeful, but that's what I got today. Yeah, I think that reflects the intensity of the experience. And, you know, a lot of questions we get have to do with this thing of like, okay, I'm going to send this email into these podcasters, and within a few minutes, they're going to give me the answer. And to. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't it be nice? Mm hmm. And sometimes it is a much more accurate answer to say, I don't have an answer. Here's mm-hmm. my sort of weird answer, but mm-hmm. I'm sure that's not the answer. <laughs> because if there was an answer, then we would all know about it because mm-hmm. it would solve a lot of problems. So, um, so yeah. Can I tell you what I've been noticing lately? Like, you guys know I... I I'm in personal counseling. I love my therapist. Really good guy. It's four years next month. And what I've been noticing lately is um, how much I shy away from my regular old human vulnerable need and how uh, one of my clients said this to me this week. They said, uh, righteous indignation is preferable to vulnerable um, doubt like wondering is the other person going to be there and it's so exposing to be vulnerable that um i think most of my effort is aimed at avoiding that vulnerability so 
it's easy for me to kind of look and say, well, Colleen, this, that, or the other, you know, but it's a lot harder for me. It's not easy for me to see it when it happens. It's hard for me to recognize it even after it happens. And um, in calmness with the relationship, which is pretty secure with my personal counselor, I notice I try to get away from it almost reflexively. No, actually, reflexively, automatically, I try to get away from vulnerability with someone that I've never really had a fight with. I think we've had one or two, um, I wouldn't call them fights, but um, tense, tensenesses, disagreement, something like that, um, along the four, four, four or so years together. And so even in a relationship that is safe, I have a hard time with... Um, st- connecting with and staying in my vulnerable in my vulnerability that's in a safe relationship and then you know my relationship with colleen we both have our thing and we can trigger each other and so um it is more volatility so lately what i've been thinking is i gotta learn how to do this in my personal counseling so that i can listen the only reason i go to personal counseling is because i want things to be better in my marriage i'm not in personal counseling because i think it's really cool to be in therapy i actually don't like going to therapy and i've been doing it for a long time, but, but I want my marriage to be good. I want Colleen's experience of our life together to be good. I want my experience to be good. So I'm going that said in the safe relationship, it's actually hard to be vulnerable. So, so that's what I'm working on these days. Like really like mindfully, like the guy actually helps me do that, but it really is like my thing. It's like, I'm working on this. So I'm working on my avoidance and my running away from him, even when he's, you know, decent. And I think the guy really likes me, which is an insecure way of not taking ownership of the fact that actually he loves me. He's told me that thinks I'm a good human, enjoys seeing me on Mondays at nine, um, likes having fun with me and getting paid for it. So, um, it's hard for me even now when he's not around to acknowledge that that feels really scary. So it feels scary then when I'm not even in front of them. It's scary when I am in front of them. And then it's really scary when I'm with somebody who I am triggering and who's also triggering me in my, my, in my marriage. I'm confused, Bob, on one issue is sure. that you are the most vulnerable person. Uh, or you're, I, don't know any more, I don't know anyone more vulnerable than you are and comfortable with your vulnerability. I don't know anyone who is more comfortable with being real and talking about one's hurt feelings and talking about one's vulnerability and and being authentically caring in the moment towards other people, uncomplicated. You see through the forest and see the core of the issue. You're unafraid. You're unashamed. And yet you talk about, and I believe you, mm-hmm. about having a hard time with it, including with your therapist, Mm -hmm. what's the rub there? He's not here. I don't have to do it in front of him. Um, I also have feel a sort of a moral or ethical responsibility to um, model something on this podcast, which is, you know, half the reason I'm here is um, to do that, to, I hope, pave the road for other folks who suffer. Um, so I feel a moral duty there, um, but he's also not here. So I'm not, I'm not triggered. Colleen's not sitting here. So I'm not, I'm not in the triggered place. So I think when I am in the triggered place, it's actually a lot harder for me. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So when you are triggered, yeah, as we were talking about earlier, when someone hurts your feeling, whatever happens where – Sure. Or, you know, because of disorganized attachment, you could literally be triggered by love. You could be triggered by by uncomplicated closeness. It's the worst. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard. Right. That's the tragedy of disorganized attachment, which is – that I mean, at least with preoccupied people, when you give them love and attention and security, they relax. So, mm-hmm. okay, thank God. Mm-hmm. I mean, they might have a little bit of complication around it in the back of their mind, like, well, what's going on? Mm-hmm. But you know, they they relax, and that's that's the nice thing about um, preoccupied and avoiding attachment is like there's a home base. <laughs> avoiding mm-hmm. people, the home base is I'm going to rely on myself, and the mm-hmm. preoccupied person is. I need to find that all-loving, secure person, and that's the mm-hmm. home base, and then they can relax. For the disorganized person, there's nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. That's the nature of it. And so yeah. uh, so anyway, when you are not in that triggered space, whether it's being hurt or discounted or being really close and intimate with someone, um, then you are not being triggered and thus you can talk in the way that you talk on this podcast is very self-aware and differentiated and mature and non-blamey and mm-hmm. uh, extru- one of the healthiest, if not the most healthiest podcaster on the planet. Uh, literally. I mean, honestly, I, I would, I would challenge anyone to identify a podcaster or a YouTuber that is more healthy than Bob, <laughs> you know? And so, uh, and yet you describe these instances where, um, you know, you're in it. And I'll tell you, knowing, you know, I'm in a relationship with Bob, I, I've seen mm-hmm. these moments where, where he is triggered. And mm-hmm. yeah, it, it is it is entrenched and hard, if not impossible, to um, reach Bob's, I don't know, true self, I guess, mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. when he is in that space. Um, he always eventually emerges, <laughs> but you know, in the moment it's like, um, like a switch goes off or something. Mm-hmm. Is that what it feels like? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What are you feeling right now? Sad. Yeah. Yeah. About what? Well, about that, that happens a little bit about how, um, I impact you and impact her and you you know, it's not me to be clear that the, 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 the exam, I mean, Impacting her, yeah. I mean, I think we can all imagine. Mm. <laughs> and it makes yeah, me sad hard. for the two of you, honestly. Mm-hmm. It makes me tear up a little bit thinking mm. about the two of you because you're you know, such good people. Mm. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I'm not thinking of me. You've never, you've, never, you've never exposed me, I guess, to... Um, I mean, maybe slightly, but, um, but I give it to you as much as you've given it to me in that way. And so I, I, I've never thought like I, I've only the, the examples that pop into my mind historically, you know, and I, you and I have been in a relationship for 25 years and yeah. um, I, 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 I'm sure you're going to know that I'm going to bring this up, but I always reference that moment. It was like, I don't know, 20 years ago and we were in a parking lot at Northgate and um, you were, have we talked about this specifically? I don't know. Okay. So you and I, God knows why. Mm-hmm. I could speculate, but I don't want to, and I don't want you to either because it has okay. to do with my personal life. But sure. you and I were in Northgate 
Um, but not the Northgate Mall. We were like near Northgate and all that other, you know, sort of strip molly areas. Yeah. And we both had our cars parked there for some weird reason. And we were standing in the parking lot talking. And you were talking about our mutual friends and how you were yeah. extremely angry at angry. Our, our mutual friends. Yeah. And you're still, you know, very close friends with them. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Um, and I was in the moment mm-hmm. trying to tell you, well, come on, Bob, like, mm-hmm. uh, I get it, but I think you're taking this way too far. And you mm-hmm. snapped oh. at me hardcore. Oh, I snapped. <laughs> yeah. I did. Yeah. But I knew in the moment that, oh, I just, I just stepped in it. Like I, I didn't realize that this was a sensitive issue for you. I thought this mm-hmm. was like, um, like a not sensitive issue, one mm-hmm. that I could confront as a friend and be like, Bob, come on, yeah. pal. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I get it, but you know, you got to let that one go. Right. And that was further stepping in it. And, and you got real angry at me. You, did. you didn't reject me. You didn't take it out on me. You didn't mm-hmm. hold a grudge against me. You know, the mm-hmm. next time we saw each other, which was probably like literally later that night, you were fine. There wasn't any holdover from that. But I just, mm-hmm. I always reference that moment of like, whoa. Mm-hmm. Like there's a there's a side to Bob that is very sensitive, you know, because because you you come across socially in groups as kind of like the mother bear in a certain way, where you're the one taking care of others, you're the one being nice to others, you're the one smoothing things over. Uh, other people mm-hmm. are being weird and awkward and and inappropriate and you're the one that will save them from their from themselves you know what i mean you do this all the time i've seen you i've seen you do it all i'm a little bit this way but you're like a master at it you know there's a lot of weird people in our in our friend group and and i just see you constantly (laughs) smoothing things over for other people and so um it's interesting Birdo's kind of like this too i guess it is one thing that you and him Mm -hmm. actually share Mm -hmm. um but anyway uh and so you come across like you're not sensitive, but then there's this sensitive side to you, mm-hmm. obviously, given, you mm-hmm. know, your upbringing, uh, that, uh, I want to be clear has never, has never hurt me, mm-hmm. but yeah. Um, you know, I get it that you can recall moments where it's hurt Colleen. Yeah. You know, I, I think I've said this before. You had a really good point in what you were saying to me that day. Like, it wasn't like I snapped because you didn't have a point. You did have a point. I think I felt embarrassed because part of me knew you were right. I was, um, I don't love the word overreact because of the implications, but, but my response to that had more to do with me than the actual situation is probably the best way I can think to say it right now. Totally, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, my response to our friends had more to do with me than the actual situation. But yeah. I didn't, I don't think I knew that then. And um, I was embarrassed when you pointed it out. Yeah. And so I did what I do, which is I popped at you. Not like I can, but yeah. yeah. I think that is the only time. You know, the, you say this thing about me, but the truth of the matter is, is one thing I don't share, and I wouldn't ever, is that kind of intensity. I wouldn't ever put that on this podcast to be too much for me, yeah. to be too exposing. But so, so I think people might get an impression of me as, um, because I can talk calmly about this, you know, from 10,000 feet away, um, that it isn't what it is. It is hairy. Yeah. It can get really hairy. Yeah. 
really volatile. Yeah. Yeah. And I am glad you're bringing that up because I think there's a lot of listeners who can feel less shame because mm-hmm. of their mm-hmm. own observations. Yeah. Right. Right. Themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And, and all of us. I mean, it doesn't matter what sort of upbringing we have. We all have. I mean, I, I've been working with some clients along this theme of what goes on in our minds when we're at our darkest, mm-hmm. when we're hurt by our partner, particularly. Mm-hmm. And the sentences that roll through our head from yeah. screw this noise, I'm out of here. They're a psychopath. They're gaslighting me. They don't have emotion. Um, Mm -hmm. Why am I dealing with this? I need to leave this person. Uh, This person is a complete narcissistic, uncaring, punishing psychopath, (laughs) you know, Um, or extending from that. um, I hate this person from the bottom of my soul. Um, Mm. I want to drive us both off a cliff or and not joking about it you know like like just unbridled mm-hmm. bloodthirsty anger mm-hmm. and <laughs> judgment and mirth mm-hmm. and toxicity in one's head uh and it's not a joke you know it's not like in these moments people are like haha isn't it funny that i have this thought it's it's intense it's real mm-hmm. it is what uh, if you could times it by a hundred where murder comes from uh, mm. in relationships um, mm-hmm. or the uh, bloodthirsty control that domestic violence and a partner violence relationships can, can exhibit. You see that in you. We quickly forget it for good reasons, I think, but I think all of us have been there. And um, so we can all take it easy on ourselves about those things. It's normal. But what do we do with it is the key. Mm-hmm. Um, do we just let it run rampant? Do we go to therapy? Do we take care of ourselves? Do we recognize where those things are coming from? Um, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah. But yeah, I, I just want to emphasize that I'm sure there's a lot of listeners right now saying, wow, you know, I'm really, Bob said all those things that you said and how validating it is. Um, you know, people will say the way that you talk and then uh, the cherry on top is that you're a therapist and are, uh, supposed to be a, you know, beyond this, so to speak. And to, to know that you're not is to validate them even further. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause like I was saying earlier that we have this notion and I, I was in this before, maybe even five years ago, hmm. this notion of. There are the the damaged and the healthy, and uh, mm-hmm. and I no longer think that. The more mm-hmm. I and I think the podcast has something to do with it, actually, because it the po- so. Let me tell you, I, I feel like I I just want to say this because mm-hmm. it's been kind of occurring to me lately. Is so as a client as a therapist, I have been helping a lot of clients, but my learning is limited to the clients that I'm working with, obviously, right and. I only have so much time in the week to see so many clients. Um, as a professor, I learn other kinds of things because I can focus on the things I focus on as a teacher and the things that 
uh, students bring up. I'm always learning from either being challenged or them bringing up their own examples or them just teaching me things. And so I'll learn about that. But as a professor, you tend to teach the same classes over and over again. And so the learning uh, decelerates. Uh, the podcast, because I get to make this however I want to, and I, and I can not repeat things if I don't want to repeat things, I am in a constant state of on the edge of my abilities and learning and learning and learning. And I think what the podcast has done in, in, in one respect, among many, is made me realize in my bones that people, no one is healthy. There are, in the way that we frame it, you know, no one is like undamaged. No one is without reactivity. No one is not on a, on a personality sort of spectrum. No one is secure attachment, especially the way we talk about it. Um, you can say that people have a have a greater likelihood of uh, exhibiting what we call secure attachment, but all those individuals have had literally thousands of moments of insecure attachment reactivity, and so mm-hmm. it is. It's just human nature, and uh, you know, some people will say, "Well, you know, positive psychology will say, well, no one's broken." <laughs> And I guess maybe I'm negative psychology. Say everyone's broken, you know. So get over yourself is, I guess, the thing. Um, and it, it, like I said, maybe if we live to be a thousand, we'll 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 be able to get enough therapy to somehow emerge on some other side of some threshold. But uh, clearly, the amount of years we have on this planet and the amount of years in therapy that we we just never get. Be the the healing that and this is another thing I'll say to my trainees is uh, because there's this notion of damage and undamaged is that every every child all of us when we were zero to seven years old probably on a daily basis were devastated by something our parents did to us the you know let's say somehow we were able to figure out the best parents that ever existed on the planet. And we were to watch how that, and we would get inside the mind of the child for Mm -hmm. those wonderful, beautiful parents and community. Mm -hmm. That child on a daily basis is deeply devastated and disappointed that they were not given another cookie, that they had to go to bed at 7.30, that their parents were a little busy, that they weren't able to buy that new iPad, that their sibling, uh, uh, you know, did something that their parents are proud of and they weren't proud of them, of them themselves, that they woke up from a nap and felt like they were abandoned because they couldn't see their parents right away. Or when they were nine months old, they, they couldn't reach the toy that was just out of reach. And, and it just felt really terrible and it felt like an abandonment. I mean, or, or they're sick. They're, they're two years old and they have f- the flu uh, or, or yeah, teething or oh. earache or, oh, um, or they're being weaned or they are being taught for potty training or whatever. There's just, it's just a co- constant set of disappointments. And, for us as a society, we tend to look at those disappointments and say, well, yeah, it's just a part of growing up and it's right. normal. But to the two and a half year old, it's devastating. 
Yeah. It is like the worst experience of their entire life. And it is intense because they have no ability to suit Mm -mm. themselves yet. Mm -mm. And so that's got to hurt, man. And that's Mm -hmm. that, even though it's normal, that doesn't mean that we don't retain that. It's not like, okay, these kinds of abnormal mistreatment, like actually abusing your child that that causes distress we all understand that right and that causes damage we understand that but somehow when we look at the sort of mundane damage and the mundane right. distress we're like well mm-hmm. that's not abusive well i don't i don't agree i think those moments are deeply damaging to a child mm-hmm. and we all emerge into adulthood with in the best of circumstances thousands of those little nicks on our soul that make us ashamed and scared and hurt and uh, afraid to be vulnerable and pessimistic and prone to depression and anxiety and perfectionism and uh, inactivity and demoralization. Uh, We all have those wounds. And And I hope that when I say this to people, and Bob, tell me, Mm. Is that depressing or is that liberating? I think it's liberating. Yeah, I hope it is. But you know, my opinion about therapy is therapy is trading in a really crappy set of problems for a better set of problems. <laughs> right? But uh, but so so my some of my students don't like me saying that, but what you're saying I think is liberating because we can just take it easy. Right. And we can also be realistic about um who we are, where we are, and where we're going. Yeah. 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 And to me, it also helps me understand other people because Mm -hmm. there are some people that seem like they're totally healthy, Mm -hmm. so to speak. And I'm like boggled by what they do or hurt by them or something. And then Mm -hmm. I, when I see it this way, I'm like, oh, the way that their damage manifests, it's just not super obvious to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, their whatever, whatever behavior I'm observing is, you know, how they deal with all those little nicks on their soul when they, when they yeah. were growing up. Nicely, nicely put. Nicks on the soul. I like it. Uh, let's end with one more email. Patron Heather. Just listen to your podcast where you discuss the concept of utilizing the gray rock method with getting space in relationships. Have you heard of the gray rock method, Bob? No. I'll, I'll get into that later. Okay. Um, I've been in a long-term friendship with someone who exhibits patterns similar to someone with borderline. I'm constantly feeling like a sounding board to them. Hmm. Every time I set boundaries with them, they are the boundaries are ignored or I am met with defensiveness and comments to evoke, to evoke guilt in me. I recently brought this up with them or I sorry, I recently brought this up with mutual friends of ours and my mutual friends reported similar feelings. Mm. I love this person, but feel mm. as though they are not healthy for me. Mm. Besides the gray rock method, what are other ways have you ended or broke up with unhealthy friends? Bob, what do you think? Before getting into gray rock, but just generally, what are your thoughts about that? How do we break up with unhealthy friends? Yeah. Mm. I don't know if I have much to say about this. Don't return phone calls. Um, um, avoid. What about just the notion of like you're in that liminal space between wanting to break up and saying, but I actually kind of like this friend. Is there a way to deal with that? 
oh, well, it's going to hurt for both people. I mean, probably going to feel bad about it. There's probably no getting out of that. Um, I don't know. I think there's a possibility of just being honest with myself and saying, you know what? I, I do. I love this person. There's lots to love about them. And it's not working for me. And so that's just the truth. And as a result, my path is clear. Here's what I, here's what makes sense to me um, to do. And how do I soothe myself when I inevitably feel guilty or angry or, or, or when that person shows up, you know, because, you know, they may disagree with me about whether or not we should break up as friends. Um, what I want to do with my own self-talk when that inevitably happens. Um, I, I think basically it's okay. I mean, part of me wants to say, look, nobody's that wonderful that if I break, I'm not that wonderful that if I break up with somebody, they won't figure out how to live their life in a way that's satisfying and meaningful to them. Right. So it's okay for me to leave. I'm not that great. Right. Yeah. So, um, in addition to that, what I'll say is that, um, people with borderline, not all of them do this. Not all of them treat their friends like sounding boards. Not all of them are defensive necessarily. Not yeah. all, of, not all of them will do guilt trips, but they can, uh, mm-hmm. if you were relationally traumatized, you're going to be naturally desperate for closeness and love. And you're going to, uh, really need other people. Yeah. Uh, people with borderline sometimes are described as very needy and clingy for very good reasons. And, if it's in the right circumstance, it can be actually, you know, really functioning and and healthy. Uh, so, and they're they're gonna f- they're gonna feel if you're really involved with someone who has been relationally traumatized and and their coping style is in this way, they're gonna feel like a lot of work as a friend. And that doesn't mean it's it's not worth it because it could be very worth it because they can actually have such intensity that it feels like, wow, that, you know, of all my friends, this relationship feels very deep and very real. Uh, so there's pros and cons to it. Also, they can be easily hurt, as we've been talking about, and can get upset and defensive, which makes sense. So what do you do? Well, it, um, and this really applies to any of the personality disorders that are likely to play out relationally. Narcissism comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Essentially, um, you know, you're trying to you're trying to change the relationship, you know, and you're like, I don't, I don't, I want to be a friend with this person, but I don't like the cons. And should I break up with this person? Okay. So, um, you know, now the gray rock method, which I'll go in, into first is quietly drifting away. Mm-hmm. You're essentially becoming a gray rock to that person. And, and I've actually done, uh, this method I, before I knew of the gray rock method, I actually, uh, discovered it through trial and error. Now, this isn't necessarily people with borderline. It could, it doesn't necessarily people with narcissistic personality disorder, but the way I'd characterize it is in my personal life, I, you know, have been in, you know, a lot of relationships and sometimes it's with someone who has a personality disorder in which what happens is it can be very intense and can be very gratifying, but can also be very hurtful at times because they will get triggered by me or someone else and then they will be very, very deeply hurt and they will attack me and it will 
literally make make my heart flutter with terrible anxiety as they're talking to me. Even though if you wrote everything down verbatim, you wouldn't necessarily know that something terrible was happening, but I feel it in my bones, you know, that, that just utter terror of fight or flight as someone is calmly talking to me and I'm unsure why am I so afraid right now? And I'm just desperate to like please the person essentially. And so the uh, compulsion that I have typically is to please, is to try to repair. And I usually will try to level with the person and be like, Hey, you know, I, you know, and what this can do in some situations, if the, if the person that I'm involved with is not very aware or has not enough therapy or whatever, uh, what'll happen is they will, you know, I'm thinking of one person in particular where I would have these moments and I would just be in utter terror as he would, uh, just be talking to me very calmly, but it would, it would just terrify me. I mean, the, I, I would be thrown off course physiologically for days after an interaction with him Mm. and, uh, would need therapy for months after an event with, with Mm. him. And, but again, if you watch it from the outside, you would have just seen two guys talking. You would have just, you would have thought, Oh, it's, it's this, um, you know they're they're slightly debating something or so and um and so i would have these events and my and this is over literally decades mm-hmm. of of me where for decades i would lean in and i'd be like you know what something bad happened last time we talked and and so hey let's talk about it i'm going to apologize even though in my mind i'm like i don't really feel like i did anything wrong but I'll lead the way and I'll apologize, you know, to get the ball rolling. Uh, He wouldn't really apologize. In fact, he would never apologize, Mm -hmm. but he would be nice and he would listen and he would say things like, you know, this relationship matters to me and this sort of thing. And it would, um, it would get better. And I'd be like, okay, we fixed it. It'll never happen again. And then it would happen again. And I would lean in and I would apologize and he would not, but he would be warm Mm-hmm. And we'd have these long conversations and I'd feel like I was better and then he would abuse me and then I would lean in. And, and it was this constant thing. And every time it happened, I felt like I was learning more and more about this cycle. And uh, by the way, this is not gaslighting <laughs> because he has uh, tremendous childhood relational traumas, like just awful. And so his issues are born from that. But anyway, eventually I decided that my normal efforts to try to repair were actually just keeping up my exposure to the abuse. And so the only way out from the abuse was to become a gray rock. Well, I didn't call it that back then. This is years ago. But I, I said, I'm going to become... Because the other strategy that I had was I'm going to just try to lessen our relationship. You know what I mean? I just wanted to be like, you know, I just can't really be involved with him as much anymore. But that didn't really work because of his relational issues um, and his style. He was very good at sort of sucking me back in and getting me to have my walls go down again. And so, and, you know, God bless him. I I feel bad for him. I, I 
I, the abuse he went through and all that. But at the same time, it's like, what am I going to do about it? And so um, I eventually figured out that the only way to not be abused is to be so boring <laughs> that I am like ignored. And I, and I have to do it in a very intentional campaign that went on for years, by the way, mm-hmm. so that I would no longer be on that person's radar. You know, when, when something happened for them, they wouldn't, they wouldn't even reach out to me because, because when they would reach out to me, it would, it would trigger me and I, it would trigger that pleasing response of like, oh, okay, I don't really want to respond, but if I don't respond, that will be worse for me, you know? And so I, I, I better respond, at least kind of. And then I would respond, and then it would get me entangled again, and then a month later, I'm right back where I started, where I'm crying into my pillow or something. And so I eventually learned that, it, you know, and this was a decision that I made, was just for my own self-preservation. It was just like, I just, you know, regardless of the pros and cons, I can't do this anymore. And so I just became the most boring person, just... But I had to, I had to act like I wasn't trying to be boring because if I was at, if they knew I was acting, they would call me out on it because we knew each other so well, you know? And so I went on this campaign and it worked. <laughs> like I, I'm no longer entangled, you know, and I'm, I'm no longer being, uh, you know, looked to, I'm no longer being contacted essentially. And because that was the only way to get out of it was, you know, I could draw a boundary, but in my weaker moments, that boundary just just melts away because mm. of my normal sort of response is to try to appease and to try to uh, manage or level with or something, you know. And so that's the gray rock method. Um, just thoughts on that, Bob. Sounds perfect. Yeah. Like it's what was needed in this situation. Nice job. Takes yeah. discipline. Have you ever done that before? Commitment. Yeah. You so you, you what I described, you're like, Yep, I've uh I've gone on a campaign to gray rock my way out of I am. Yeah. 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 So I, I didn't know it I never called it that, but yeah. Right. To avoid yeah. being abused. Abused, a bit strong, but um, mistreated, yeah. Yeah. That you couldn't, uh, there was no way to manage that without becoming a gray rock. I believe that's true. Yeah. Yeah. No matter, like, boundaries while staying in contact would work. No, they don't really work. Yeah. Yeah. And it's terrible. It's a terrible tragedy. You know, the person I'm thinking of mm-hmm. deserves better in life, mm-hmm. but that's not my effing job <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's kind of where i am so very quickly uh before journeying there's a few other mm-hmm. options one is in situations like this you can try harder to change the relationship you know you could you could try that's an option um you know it's, it's totally and i've and with other people in my life i've done that for sure mm-hmm. i would say the gray rock method is like a last resort mm-hmm. um, for me personally yeah. I, it doesn't have to be for you but um, the other, the second thing is, is to find good things in, in the relationship to kind of counter the bad things. When you're involved with someone, there's always going to be bad things. Um, and like I ran into this with Birdo 
where we had some pretty humongous ruptures in our relationships, big mm-hmm. fights. And I remember uh, thinking I was done with him, like, that's it, no, no more me and him. But then I thought about it after months of us essentially being emotionally distant and thought, you know what, when I add up all the good things, it's worth the bad things. And so sometimes, you know, it's another way of looking at it because if we always default to avoiding, then where would we be? Um, the third thing is to be blunt. So, you know, some people with borderline or other personality disorders, they they live in a blunt world. And so you might not, but they might actually be totally fine. I I have a friend who suffers from borderline. And I learned over time that she actually appreciates it when I'm very blunt. And she's very blunt with herself. She calls herself the B word. <laughs> you know, she'll just be like, yeah, I was being a B word yesterday. And that's her code word for when that flip, you know, when that switch gets flipped, mm-hmm. I become that other person that I don't like. Mm-hmm. And um, and so she trusts me enough and we trust each other enough such that I can I can just say, so are you being a B word right now? Is that is that what's happening? And she'll be like, oh, she's like, well, maybe, but I don't care. You know, but it somehow helps to have that Instead of like trying to tiptoe around her, it's just like, hey, let's just call it out for for yeah. what it is. You know, right. this is who you are, and it's fine. And sometimes people with borderline or other personality disorders they'll really appreciate that because they'll be like, you know, no one else is is brave enough to just call it out for what it is. You know, I I'm losing my shit right now, but I also don't want to lose my relationships with people. And it drives me nuts when I'm losing my crap and people just run away. Like, just tell me, just, just, just look in my face and go like, you're losing your crap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, I can take it. Like, it's okay. I, at the, the worst thing that can happen is that you quietly hate me and reject me ever so slowly. That's like, mm-hmm. you know, give me a chance here. You know, that kind of, um, the other option is to just break up honestly and just say like, you know what? You're abusive or, you know, Patron Heather, you're like, you know what? Every time I try to set boundaries, you kind of treat me badly, and I'm a sounding board. I feel like this is a unidirectional relationship, and I'm really sorry, mm-hmm. but I feel like I need to break up with you. You can do that too. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of different options available, and you just have to think about which one you think is best for you. Right. All right. I'm mindful of Bob's time. He's got mm-hmm. clients to see. He's got crap mm-hmm. to do. He's got dogs to tend to. Uh, final word, Bob, on today's episode of Borderline Emails. Well, we did pretty good. I think we got through six. Yeah, um, there's so many more that we'll have to do next time. Okay, fine. And I think we covered things in a comprehensive way, as far as I know. I'm going to listen to this a little while later and when it gets published. And, you know, but my, my impression of is we did a pretty good job today. Yeah. All Let's right. pat ourselves on the back. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. 